Thanks for listening to the Downtown Community Church Podcast. My name is William and I'm the Executive Director here at DCC. DCC is located in downtown Tallahassee and our heart is to reach the city through loving God, making disciples, and being great neighbors. We recently launched a new building campaign called Building Opportunities. Over the years, we've seen God do some incredible things and we're excited about this next step we're taking as a church. To learn more about the building campaign and to see how you can be a part, visit downtowncommunitychurch.com. Thanks again for listening, and we hope you enjoy this week's sermon. Nehemiah, you know, kind of buddy-buddy with the most powerful man in the world at this point. Um, He has a friend who goes to Jerusalem. Remember, Jerusalem is destroyed. It's burned down. It was destroyed by Babylon uh, 142 years prior to this. And so his buddy comes back and he says, or, or, and Nehemiah asks him, what's Jerusalem like? And the guy says, it is burned to the ground. The same way it's been our entire lives, our parents' entire lives, our grandparents' entire lives. The, the state of Jerusalem has not changed anytime recently. It's still destroyed. And this isn't news to Nehemiah. Nehemiah would have known this, but at this moment in time, it just kind of hits Nehemiah what has happened. You see, the, the responsibility or, or kind of the, um, what God has given to Israel to do is Israel was supposed to be the light of the world. It was supposed to be uh, the nation in which people looked to and saw God, saw God Almighty. And so the temple was there, so people would, would gather there and worship God. Uh, people would go there, they would travel there to worship God, and, and they would, uh, Israel was supposed to be this great, mighty nation that people could look to and see this, the, the God they serve is the one true God. And, but what has happened, because of the rebellion, because of their sin, it's been destroyed, and there is no temple, there is no Jerusalem. It's all a bunch of rocks and rubble burned to the ground. And so Nehemiah, in this moment, just kinda, it, it kind of hits him the reality of what's going on. is man, we have been so wicked, we've been so sinful, we have disobeyed the commandments of God, and now what's happening is the world is mocking the one true God. The world is saying, look at the Israelites, man. They can't get their stuff together. Like, they're the worst. Their God isn't real. Like, there is no God of Israel. And so this, in this moment in time, even though it's not news to Nehemiah, it just breaks his heart. And he says, man, we have acted so wickedly. And because we have acted wickedly, people don't know about who God is. And so he begins fasting. He begins praying. Um, in fact, we see Nehemiah as one of the greatest uh, men of prayer that we see in the entire Bible. Uh, this, this prayer that happens in chapter 1 uh, is one of the longest prayers we have in the entire Bible. Uh, and he starts by saying, you know, God, you are good, you are worthy, you are righteous, you are all of these things that we are not. In fact, we are sinful. We have acted rebellious against you. We have uh, disobeyed your commandments. And so what he's praying for is, is God... I ask that we can go back to Jerusalem and rebuild. That we can go back, and and what Nehemiah's main burden is, is to build the wall, because a city without a wall was uh, basically unsafe. No one would go back there because there was no guarantee that you wouldn't get, you know, attacked and killed. You couldn't build a temple. Their temples had, like, all this gold and ornate stuff, and, you know, if you didn't have a wall, people would just waltz in and, like, steal that and take it home with them. And so uh, they needed a wall, and so Nehemiah's goal here to rebuild the city is to initially rebuild this wall. 
and he's praying to God for, for months and months and months, over and over and over again, and, and fasting as well, saying, God, we pray that you do this work. We pray that you rebuild the city, you reestablish Jerusalem so that people can know who you are. And so the idea of this series was kind of talking about what is our calling as Christians? As Nehemiah was called to build a wall, what is our calling? What I've kind of realized, though, after having conversations about this is that we are are a little misguided in this, and and so I want to take a moment to clarify what we talk about when we talk about calling, because a lot of times we romanticize this idea of calling that God has called me to serve as a missionary in some foreign country or Like, it's either God calls you to that or he doesn't call you to do anything. That's kind of the idea of Christianity is, like, I'm either a missionary or, like, I'm Joe Schmo working, you know, at wherever job I have. And, but the reality is, is that when we talk about the calling of God in our lives, and we look at this life of Nehemiah, what Nehemiah is desiring to do is he's desiring to go back and to rebuild Jerusalem so that people can see who God is, so that people can worship God. His desire is is through obedience and through following God's law, instead of being rebellious and wicked like the Israelites have been for so long. His desire is to obey God, to go back and reestablish the city, so that the entire world can see Jerusalem, can see the people of God and say that God is the one true God. And so when we talk about our calling in our lives, yes, maybe there are these you know, magnificent things that you're called to. But what we can say as a group of Christians in general, and this is true of everybody, is that we are called to obedience. We are called to follow God. We are called to to read his word and, and to allow it to change our lives so that people can look at us and say, man, that person follows God, because what we, what we see, and this is, just as Nehemiah sees Jerusalem is destroyed and people are mocking Jerusalem and mocking God, what we see in our lives is that people look at the church and they mock the church. They look at the church and they mock God because we have acted unrighteous, because we have rebelled against God, because we are wicked. And you look around and the church claims to, be, to have the answers and to be righteous and to be following God, and you look at the scandals in the church, you look at affairs in the church, you look at all these things and you're like, man, these people are so wicked. The state of the church is in, is in such desolation just as Jerusalem was, and yet we are called, our calling as Christians is to live righteously, is to be obedient to God. That that is the calling, this calling that Nehemiah fasts and prays for over and over and over and over again. That's the same calling we have, that in whatever avenue of life, wherever we are, that we're to be obedient to God, we're to follow the word, we are to be the light to the world of what Jesus has done. And so we're going to look at this life of Nehemiah and how he does it and kind of how we can apply that to ourselves. Um, But Nehemiah starts with this prayer privately. In his own house, he's praying for months and months and months to God. And and what happens is, Nehemiah being this great character of prayer, we learn a lot about prayer from him. Unfortunately, what we see in Christianity a lot of times is that this is sort of, this is what prayer is. This alone is what prayer is, is what you do when you're, you know, in your room. That's prayer, and then everything else is is not prayer. And and what we see in the life of Nehemiah is how much further prayer goes. It is not just praying privately, but praying publicly. And so what you see in the beginning of chapter 2, after he's been praying for months and months and months, the king one day asks him, he says, Nehemiah, like, what's up? You look sad. 
and Nehemiah is scared because you, like, you don't do that. You don't act sad or look sad in front of the king. You get in a lot of trouble if you do that. And by a lot of trouble, I mean they usually kill you. And so he, in a moment, he's scared. And, and you see, it's a really funny interaction. Um, I think it's in chapter 2, verse 4 and 5. Uh, the king says, what do you, or he, he asks why I'm sad. He says, well, this is why I'm sad. And the king says, okay, well, what do you need? You know, Nehemiah says, I want to go rebuild this wall because Jerusalem needs to be rebuilt. And the king says, well, what do you need? And you see that in, in verse 4, the king says, what do, you need, what do you request? And he says, so I prayed to the God of heaven, and I said to the king, uh, if it pleases you, the king, your servant, has found favor before you, blah, 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 blah. And he basically asked for a bunch of trees um, to get cut down so that he can have wood to rebuild the wall. What's really funny about it, though, is that when the king says, like, what do you request? Nehemiah doesn't, like, go, like, hold on, king, and run off in the corner and fall down and say, like, oh, Lord, uh, mighty God of heaven, forgive me of my sins. It just says he prayed real quick and then he answered. And what we see here is kind of like when, when Paul writes the letter to the Thessalonians and he says, pray without ceasing. You see this moment in time in which Nehemiah has prayed privately uh, these long prayers before God, but in this moment he prays a real quick prayer. God, you know what I've asked, you know what I, what I desire, and I know that only you can do it, so please do it right now. You know, Nehemiah wasn't expecting at this time for the king to ask this. This is kind of like a surprise to him. And so in a moment, he doesn't have a lot of time to sit down and pray, but he's already prayed so much that he can just say, God, take care of this. God, you do this real quick. And so what you see in this life of prayer is Nehemiah not only prays these long, long, long prayers privately, but he lives a life of prayer every moment, always acknowledging God, acknowledging that God is the one in control, that he's the one doing everything. And so even in the midst of just simple interactions with people, he's just praying real quick. And so he asks the king, he says, I need, you know, I need permits, I need a passport, I need you know, a bunch of lumber to rebuild the wall and all these things, and, the, and I need a year off of work. And the king says, sure, man, if you want to go, you can go. I like you. Like, do what you need to do, man. And so... Uh, he goes and he does it, and we're going we're gonna to pick up in verse 9 of chapter 2 in just a second, but what I want to look at is we see this life of prayer that Nehemiah lives, but unfortunately what happens to us as Christians is that we don't believe that prayer gets things done. That so often, and I'm not saying every single person does, but so often we view prayer prayer in this terrible way of like, I'd rather be doing something. You know, prayer is good, we should pray, whatever, but like standing alone in a room doing, just talking to God seems like it's not getting anything done. I'd rather be doing something. And we know that's not the case. We know the Bible doesn't talk about prayer in that way, but I think unfortunately a lot of us believe accidentally that prayer is not that effective. In fact, I've talked to people recently uh, who, who have said, you know, I wish that I believed that prayer got things done. I just don't. Like, I know I should, I know I should believe that prayer is effective, but it, it just for whatever reason, like, I'm incapable of believing that prayer gets anything done. And so what we're going to look at in the life of Nehemiah is how his prayer gets things done. It starts in, in uh, verse 9 of chapter, or verse, yeah, verse 9 of chapter 2. And this is when he starts, he begins to do the work. He's been asking the king and things like that, but this is where it starts. He says, uh, in verse 9, Then I came to the governors of the provinces beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Basically, you know, the king's letters were saying, hey, I'm allowed to do this. The, you know, the king of the world right now allowed me to do this, so what are you going to do? Like, you just got to listen. Um, now, the king had sent me with officers of the army and the horsemen. And so what you see immediately is that 
although Nehemiah had planned for this, um, he didn't plan perfectly. That there are things that he forgot, there are things that he didn't think about, there are things that, you know, even though he's, he's praying and preparing for, to do this work that God has called him to, um, there are certain things that he just didn't think about. And one of those things is an army to go with him. Because when you would travel in the ancient world, you were always in danger. You know, you're not like in your nice car where you can lock the doors and like drive a million miles an hour, but you're on the back of a donkey going slightly faster than a person can walk. And so like anyone at any point could come attack you. They were carrying a bunch of logs, which is worth a lot of money. And so they were in danger. But because of Nehemiah's prayer, because Nehemiah has sought after God to do this work, God is providing in ways that Nehemiah didn't expect. And one of those is is the king, in fact, even though the king really had no reason to let Nehemiah do this, he actually was so, uh, Nehemiah was so favorable to the king that the king said, you know what, I'll give you everything you've asked for, and I'll also send you with an army. And you see immediately that God is providing in ways that Nehemiah didn't expect or plan for. Uh, Verse 10, when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard about it, it was very displeasing to them that someone had come to seek the welfare of the sons of Israel. And right away, you know, these guys are a couple chumps. There's a third one that we'll talk about later too. Um, Right away, these guys who are no doubt anti-Semitic, don't like the nation of Israel, don't want Israel to gain power again, they don't like the fact that this is happening. They don't want Jerusalem to be rebuilt. And in fact, it's, they are officials, they're government officials, so they represent a body of people. And what you see is there are a lot of people who don't want Israel to rebuild. They don't want the, the, the sons of God to have a home again. They don't want the temple to be rebuilt. In fact, uh, Zerubbabel and Ezra are two guys that have gone back to Jerusalem prior to this and tried to rebuild and have, they haven't failed, but they've ha- they faced a lot of uh, adversaries, you know, coming against them, saying, or trying to prevent them from doing this. People don't like Israel. It's not a new thing. It's existed really since the beginning of Israel existing. People do not like them. People do not like the people of God. And what you see here, and this is just a reality of prayer, and it's unfortunately like one of the first things we see, is that things will get worse before they get better. That in living the life of prayer, living the life of obedience to God, people rise up against it. You know, Jesus said to his disciples, a servant is not greater than his master. So basically what he was saying was, if I'm persecuted, you better expect that you're going to be persecuted as well. And of course, we understand that in a different way because all, almost all of the disciples were killed for what they believed in. And we as, you know, 21st century Christians, we are living in the easiest time it's ever been to be a Christian. We're not really worried about being killed. But the reality is, is that as we embrace righteousness, as we embrace the, being obedient to God, people don't like that. People don't like the fact that, that we live according to God's word and then we say that, that everyone needs to, that everyone is sinful, that everyone it, it needs God because they are incapable of good themselves and so they need the work of Christ to forgive them. People don't like that. People, people don't respond well to that message usually. I mean, obviously for all of us, when we heard that message, we said that is true and that we need that. But for a lot of people, they hear that and they hate the idea that they don't get to do what they want to do. And so you see this beginning of, uh, of people rising up against 
Nehemiah. And in fact, it gets much worse. Uh, right now, they're kind of, it says they're very displeased, which is like, okay, whatever. Like, I'm very displeased about a lot of things. But in fact, what, what you see is they're going to start accusing them of rebellion. They're going to start accusing them of, uh, of treason, of going against the king. And they're actually going to, uh, their lives are going to be threatened because of these guys, because people do not want Jerusalem to be rebuilt. Uh, verse 11 so I came to Jerusalem, and I was there for three days. This is the first time Nehemiah's ever gone to Jerusalem. He's never been there before. Um, and so what he wants to do is he wants to go kind of scope it out. He wants to go look at it. No one really knows, besides him, or besides Nehemiah, the king, and a couple people that he brought with him, no one really knows what Nehemiah's planning on doing. And so he's going to go back. He's going to check it out. He's going to kind of look at what he needs to do before he starts the work and before he tells anyone. Verse 12, and I arose in the night, uh, I and a few men with me, and I did not tell anyone what my God was putting into my mind to do in Jerusalem, and there was no animal with me except the animal on which I was riding. So I went out at night by the valley gate in the direction of the dragon's well and onto the refuse gate, inspecting the walls of Jerusalem, which were broken down, and its gates, which were consumed by fire. Then I passed through the fountain gate. Interesting thing about the fountain gate in the king's pool is uh, Jesus healed a lot of people there doesn't matter to the story at all. It's just interesting. Uh, but there was no place for my mount to pass. So I went up by night and inspected the wall. And then I entered the valley gate and I returned. The officials did not know where I had gone or what I had done, nor had I as yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, or the rest who did the work. And so Nehemiah goes out, and, and he's looking at the city, and of course, he's a guy who's prayed so much about this, this thing, and so you can, you, know, you can definitely believe that in this time he's praying. He's looking at Jerusalem for the first time, and I mean, it's so bad that when he's walking around, there are parts where his, his donkey that he's riding on can't go, so he has to jump off and walk around by foot. Like, it, it's so destroyed, everything is burned down and torn down and all that kind of stuff, that he can't even ride his donkey through all of it. And you can imagine if, man, if he just hearing about Jerusalem was weeping and fasting and praying, then can you imagine when he finally sees it? Like, just hearing about it causes him to do all those things. When he finally sees it, can you imagine what is going on in him? That he sees what sin and rebellion has done. It has destroyed the city. He's looking at the temple that is in ruin. He's looking at this wall that's burned to the ground. He's looking at this place that was supposed to be this mighty city of God. And he's looking at it as just, it's entirely burned down because of the people of Israel's disobedience, because they have rebelled against God. And so you can just imagine the emotion that's going through Nehemiah. And he starts to see kind of the amount of work that's going to have to happen. You know, I mean, he's planned for it. He's kind of had an idea of what he's going to have to do. But in this moment in time, he sees what is going to happen. To give you perspective as to, to what the, the wall of Jerusalem looked like, um, it, was made of, it was made of large stones. It was about 15 feet tall. Um, it was between three and four feet wide, depending on if it was the top or the base. Um, so, you know, you can imagine this enormous wall, and it's about the city of Jerusalem, uh, or the ancient city of Jerusalem, is between a mile and a half, two miles in circumference, and so you can imagine building this wall that's made out of stone, 15 feet tall, three, four feet wide. Uh, if you 
went out, uh, if we were to build the wall, we would go down railroad till we hit Gaines. We would go up on Gaines to, till Monroe. We would go north on Monroe until we hit Tennessee Street, and we would go east on Tennessee until we hit Leon. That's how long, the, it's almost exactly how long the wall is, this 15-foot tall, three, four feet wide, made out of giant rocks. They didn't have, you know, a bunch of machinery, like they had to pick the rocks up themselves. Um, it's this enormous task, and Nehemiah is looking at it, seeing what has to happen. So Nehemiah, being this man of God, being this man of prayer, who has desired to bring uh, the city of Jerusalem back to what it was, is seeing basically how much there is before him, how much is stacked up against him. Because he's looking at the work that needs to be done, and it's so much more work, really, than you could even fathom when you're looking at you know, the, the destruction that's there. He's realizing now that people are starting to rebel uh, against them, that people are starting to kind of threaten their lives. Um, in fact, you see when they're rebuilding the wall, that they uh, are rebuilding it with spears in their hands because they're not sure like, when they're, if they're going to get attacked or not. Um, he sees how difficult the work is before him, how everything is stacking up against him, how there is really, I mean, it's, there's almost no hope for getting this done because of how much there is to get done. He sees the size of the task before him, but here's what, uh, where he kind, of, he kind of rallies the troops in verse 17. This is when he declares the vision that he's had to the people, where he tries to get everyone you know, in on the work, and he says, Then I said to them, You see the bad situation that we are in, that Jerusalem is desolate and its gates are burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the walls of Jerusalem so that we will no longer be a reproach. And I told them how the hand of my God had been favorable to me and also about the king's words which he had spoken to me. And then they said, let us arise and build. And so what you see is Nehemiah is being honest with the people. He's saying, yes, it is probably worse than we thought. It is not a good thing. There's a lot of work that needs to be done. There's a lot of people that are not stoked that we're doing this work. Um, yes, it is a lot of work, but, and this is where you see the heart of a man of prayer, of a man of God. He says, but listen to how far we've come already. Listen to what God has already done. God has already granted our, uh, us favor in the eyes of the king that he's given us the, the, the lumber that we needed. He's given us the materials that we needed. He's given us a decree saying that we can go do this. God has already done so much that it's clear that this is what God is desiring to do. And so even though it looks tough, even though it's going to be a lot of work, God is on our side. In verse 19, um, so they put their hands, oh, I guess that's the sentence before. So they put their hands to good work, verse 19. But when Sinbalat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official and Geshem the Arab heard it, they mocked us and they despised us, saying, what is this thing you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? And, and so they, even though, you know, they're starting to get the work, they're starting to get the people on their side, there are still these officials, there's actually a third official now representing another group of people saying, what are you doing? Are you rebelling against the king? They're accusing them of treason. In fact, later they will try to get them killed for this. Um, the people are not happy, but this is how Nehemiah responds, and this is, this is one of the most incredible things that Nehemiah says in this entire book. It says in verse 20, So I answered them, and I said to them, 
the God of heaven will give us success. Therefore, we, his servants, will arise and build, but you have no portion, right, or memorial in Jerusalem. You see, what Nehemiah does here in responding to these people that want them to stop working and responding to these people who who, uh, basically want them killed for doing this because they don't want them rebuilding Jerusalem... And in the midst of all of this, uh, all of the trials that are coming before them and trying to rebuild Jerusalem, Nehemiah's heart is this, that the God of heaven will give us success. Therefore, we will arise and build. You see, because he has prayed, because he is focused on, on aligning his will with God, because he believes that this is the work that God wants to do, he says, you know what, you can come against us, you can do whatever you want, but the God of heaven has given us success, and because he has given us success, we are going to start working. That the heart of prayer, that, 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 that focusing on praying to God is not just something that we do privately, it's not just that we are praying to God, but it's that we believe that God is doing a work, and so we begin to work knowing that God will finish it. See, what Nehemiah could have done, you know, he had a nice, like, government job where he probably had really nice benefits and and, and was getting paid pretty well, and he could have just prayed over and over and over again, God, I pray that you rebuild Jerusalem, I pray that you rebuild Jerusalem, and then never done anything about it, and then never acted on anything, and when someone would say, hey, Nehemiah, why don't you do something about it? He says, no, man, I am, I'm praying about it, like, I'm praying for it. But you don't see that as the heart of Nehemiah. The heart of Nehemiah is, I am praying about it, and I'm going to do something because I believe that God will do the work. That I'm going to start acting because I believe that this is what God wants to do. That prayer is not just private, but prayer is public. Prayer is not just us coming before God and asking that he does a work, but us doing a work knowing that God is the one who finishes the work that we begin to act knowing that God is the one who gets the things done. What they're facing is really almost an impossible task, and they're going to finish it in record-breaking time because Nehemiah's belief is that God is the one who gives us success. Therefore, we will arise and build. And we look at that, we see what Nehemiah is doing, and we think about that in our own lives. We think about that in the state of where we see the church, in the state of where we see Christianity as being rebellious, as being wicked, as, you know, Christianity, Christians are supposed to be the light of the world that reveals the love of Jesus Christ, and yet so frequently we see it doing the opposite, that it's turning people away from God. And what we see, what we can take from this life of Nehemiah is not only that we are to pray for the church, to pray for downtown community church, to pray for the church as a whole, the church and the world, to pray for fellow brothers and sisters of Christ, but that also we are called to obedience, that we are called to live according to the scriptures, according to the commandments of God, to follow him, to embrace righteousness, knowing that God is the one who does it knowing that we ourselves are incapable of doing anything, but we're not just supposed to pray, we're not just supposed to, you know, like repent and ask that God helps us, but that we are supposed to pursue obedience. That we believe that through doing the work, God has given us success. Through working towards embracing Christ, 
that he cleanses us, that, that through focusing on the work of Jesus, he makes us more obedient. What's so incredible about the life of Nehemiah, about his, his view of prayer, is we see this in some of the Old Testament saints, and although they didn't entirely understand what God was doing, and that, that is that not only is he rebuilding the city so that people can look to Jerusalem to see the, the, the city of God, but also he's rebuilding Jerusalem so the people of Israel can come back so that the, the tribe of Judah can continue so that one day Jesus could be born, that the grand uh, scheme of uh, of scripture, that the big theme that this whole thing is going through is that everything is leading up to Jesus Christ. And although he doesn't entirely understand what is going to happen, he does understand that God has promised them that he will fix the problem of sin. And what we can look at as, as seeing the whole of scripture and understanding entirely what happened is that this heart of prayer reflects the reality of what the gospel is, is that we were sinful, we were wicked, we were incapable of obedience, we were incapable of righteousness. We in and of ourselves, every time we uh, would strive to being better, to being more obedient, to being more righteous, all it ended in was us realizing the wickedness that we have, that our own inadequacy, our own inability to do anything that is good. And so what God did was he granted us success through Jesus Christ, knowing that we were in capable of righteousness. He sent his son who was righteous so that we could be saved. That, that, that we believe as Christians that, that God has granted us success, not based on anything that we have done, but based on the cross, that Jesus Christ died to alleviate the problem of sin, to alleviate our own wickedness and disobedience, so that as we embrace Christ in obedience, as we embrace Christ in our relationship, in being forgiven of our sins, that we can be that light to the world, not based on anything that we are capable of doing, not based on our own righteousness, but based on the righteousness of Christ. That just as Nehemiah knows, we are incapable of doing this work, but we believe that God will get it done, and therefore we're going to embrace it. Similarly, we look and say, the church is in a terrible state. We ourselves are in a terrible state of sin and rebellion and wickedness, and yet as we embrace God, we believe that he will give us the success that through Jesus Christ, we will be made more like him. And through doing so, people will look in our lives and say, that person is a follower of God. that us in and of ourselves and in Jerusalem in and of themselves trying to be the light of the world is impossible. And so we have to believe that God is the one who does the work. You see, the reason that we don't necessarily always think that prayer is, is working is because we try to divorce the idea of prayer as being both private and public. We, we see prayer as being just us praying for forgiveness of sins and for God to make us better, and, and we divorce it from the fact that obedience is prayer. That we don't just pray privately, but we pray publicly through the way that we live our lives, through the way that, that we do the things, that the way that we are obedient. What you see it in Nehemiah's life where he's saying God has given us success, therefore we're going to arise and build, believing that God is going to finish the work. Similarly, we say we believe that God is doing a work through our obedience to him, that we are all called to this thing.
And so we are called to embrace this mindset that we are to pray privately, but we're to pray publicly through the way we live our lives, through embracing Jesus Christ, through looking to Him for the forgiveness of our sins, and and looking to Him to make us more like Him. That that is the calling in our lives. That is what we have been called to as Christians. And that in doing so, the world looks to us and sees Jesus. They don't see our works. They don't see what we've done. They see what God is doing through us. We are incapable of doing anything good, but God does the good. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you um, for everything you've done, and and we pray for... uh, this church, we pray for the church in general. We pray for all Christians, God, that, um, Lord, that we believe that you have granted us success, and that success is through Jesus Christ, God. That success is not through our work or anything that we can do, but the success is through your blood that you've shed for us. We pray for obedience in our lives, obedience obedience that we are incapable of, God. We pray that you do that work through us. We pray that we can pray better privately, Lord, but that also we can pray better publicly through the way we live our lives, through the way that we worship you in our obedience, in following your word, in following you, Christ, that the world can see the forgiveness of sins that you have to offer. Jesus, we're so grateful for everything you've done. We're so grateful for who you are, for the fact that we were uh, wicked and rebellious and had no reason for you to love us, for you to redeem us, and yet in your goodness you did so anyway because you are so loving, because you are so compassionate. And so, Lord, we pray that even though we are undeserving, God, that you can, through us, draw us into obedience, draw us into life with you so that others can see who it is that you are. That just as the world could look to Jerusalem uh, as, as this mighty city of God, Lord, they can look to us as followers of God and see the love that you have. Jesus, we pray that we can continue to focus on your grace, that that there's no works that we can do that make us righteous, but it's only your grace, Lord. And so we pray for more and more of your grace, God. Thank you for everything that you've done. Thank you for everything that you are. God, love and compassion and mercy and grace. Jesus, we thank you, and in your name, amen.